This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. I'm Helen Farmer. This is the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Uh, we are having a bit of a health special on the show today. We're marking the Global Awareness Day for Childhood Cancer and joined in the studio by Lama Andari, sharing the story of her four-year-old Sam, who is fighting leukaemia and how it's inspired her to make some big changes with the community too. Zareen Sultan joined us after she had her whole world turned upside down, starting with a very strange symptom and leading to some health anxiety. She was on hand to explain a little bit more. And speaking of mental health, OnStar and Lighthouse Arabia have launched a new support platform, webinars, looking at road traffic accident victims. What are some of the psychological impacts of this kind of trauma and how long can it last? We had dentist Dr. Callum keeping your teeth in check and turning our attention to the animals. Dr. Sergio De Silva was on hand to answer all of your pet questions, including a whole lot of birds. Every year, more than 400,000 children and adolescents below the age of 20 are diagnosed with cancer. And the rate of survival depends on so many things. The region, 80% of survival in high-income countries as low as 20% in low- and middle-income countries. And today, February 15th, is Global Childhood Cancer Awareness Day. This year, the theme is Through Their Hands, which focuses on paying tribute to the families, the caregivers, and the positive impact they have on the lives of children and teens living with cancer. And so, so honoured to be joined in the studio now by Lama Andari. She is the mother of a four-year-old superhero. He's fighting cancer and she's here to tell their story. Lama, thank you for being with us. Can you tell us a little bit about the ribbon that you're wearing? First of all, thank you so much for this amazing opportunity. You're welcome. Um, so the ribbon that I'm proudly wearing is the yellow ribbon, which resembles childhood cancer. And it's a topic that deserves a lot more attention. Mm -hmm. So I wear it very proudly on my chest so that it can start a conversation with uh, strangers that where I'm, if I'm walking down the street, I I bump into someone, they tend to ask, what is this? And that's how we start the conversation and raise awareness altogether. Let's talk about your boy, Sammy. Tell us a little bit about him and when you first realized that something wasn't right with his health. Yes. Um, So Super Sam, my son, got diagnosed at the age of two. Um, First of all, we noticed that he was limping, which was quite odd. And then he had random fevers here and there. We thought, first of all, it could be an issue with his hip. Uh, And then two weeks later, um, a blood test confirmed that he had leukemia, which is cancer in the blood. It was an utter shock for all of us. We don't have anyone in the family who has leukemia or pediatric cancer. Uh, But it got us to think a lot about childhood cancer and how can we support uh, children going through cancer. I was also pregnant at the time and it was COVID. Uh, So that made things much more complicated. Uh, But that's how the idea came about that how could we support families going through this? It can be a very lonely journey. Uh, Psychologically, parents going through it, it's very tough on them. They don't know how to be strong for their own children. Mm -hmm. And they have to be uh, to some level very resilient and strong for their their children so that the children also... Um, are inspired by them. So the idea came about to uh, register and start a social enterprise called Aptaluna. What does that mean? So Aptaluna in Arabic means our superheroes. And most definitely children fighting cancer are superheroes. And even those who unfortunately don't uh, win the battle. uh, It's important that we honor every child who is going through this battle and their families because Mm -hmm. it takes a child to raise, uh, it takes the whole world to uh, 
sorry, it takes a village to raise a child, but then again, it, re it requires the whole world to be there for children going through cancer so that we can support them. Tell us a little bit about Sami's treatment and, and how he's doing. So um, we started with chemotherapy, which is usually the protocol or the roadmap for children going through um, cancers in general and leukemia specifically. Obviously, there are many other uh, cancers, so there are different treatment options, surgery, radiotherapy, etc. But for our son, it was chemotherapy as well as immunotherapy. Um, for leukemia, it's a quite a lengthy treatment. It's two years and a half on average. So this is also something that it's important to talk about, that this family requires support. The siblings as well, because they go through so much and the friends, not just the children going through cancer. Mm -hmm. And it's quite lengthy. Um, so he's still going through treatment. He has eight months left and he's just been uh, an incredible bundle of joy and inspiration, uh, determined, humorous. And he's really the inspiration why I'm able to sit here with you and talk about uh, childhood cancer and raise awareness. It sounds like he's taught you a lot. Most definitely. They say that parents raise children. I think it's sometimes the other way around. They raise us figuratively and literally. Mm -hmm. uh, they teach us so much. They inspire us. I look at him and I'm like, how do you do it? Really? How do you do it? At the age of two until now, he's four years old. He walks into the hospital, says hello to everyone, counts before he's, he's accessed uh, uh, and given medication. And they're just children are phenomenal. I want to say a personal thank you for writing the book <laughs> that you have, Super Kids, because... My daughter's friend was diagnosed with leukemia about a year ago. Shout out to Connie. She's doing amazing. She's back in school, um, not full time, but doing just so, so well. And I have really struggled with knowing how to talk to my children about it because I don't have the answers because sometimes the questions are really hard. Like, why do kids get cancer? Of course. So tell us a little bit about the decision to write a book and, and who it's for, I guess, Lama. For sure. Uh, a big shout out to Connie and her family enduring Absolutely. this. Um, so obviously children have a lot of questions. I noticed when, in one of your posts you're saying that endless every night, questions. endless questions. <laughs> and you can imagine children going through cancer, how many questions they have or even their siblings or their friends. And I decided to write uh, this book called Super Kids to be able to um, normalize speaking about childhood cancer. Uh, and to be able to raise awareness. So uh, the book has been my therapy, really, waiting for my son, endless hours uh, in the hospital, getting his treatment. I thought to myself, I want to reframe cancer. We cannot talk about cancer in a positive sense, but at least let's talk about it using hopeful words. And it's not fair that we don't talk about cancer. It's a tab taboo subject to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. We fear talking about it. So um, this book uh, enlightens both children and adults alike about childhood cancer. What is it that a child goes through. It's inspired by obviously my son, Super Sam, and other kids, his friends, that enter a superhero headquarter building. They go through 10 different rooms to become superheroes and uh, eventually finishing uh, cancer treatment. And each room takes uh, the reader through a journey that is engaging, insightful. And something very special about this book is that it's been illustrated by a 12-year-old girl who's Aww. actually my neighbor, lives in Dubai. I tried working with adults at the beginning. I thought they're just not getting the concept so I reached out to her and she did an amazing job. What's um, her name? Her name is Malak Jandi. Shout out. Shout out to her because she and her family have been very supportive. Uh, and it, it's not easy for a child to understand this concept and to illustrate it. But the way she's done the book, it's just incredibly unique. And I'm very proud of her. Uh, and I'm proud of such a collaboration. Tell us a little bit about the social enterprise. Who is that for, Lana? 
So um, there are three main goals for the social enterprise. One of the first one is to connect with other families. As I said, it's a lonely journey. Sometimes uh, when a child is immunocompromised, we stay at home. We don't interact with family and friends that we need actually to interact with and uh, gain our support. And more importantly, families going through cancer can relate a lot. Sometimes you sit down with a parent who's gone through it and you just it just clicks. You understand the pain, the agony, the suffering, uh, the fears, uh, and the milestones, the happy moments that you uh, share. So first of all, it's to connect with these families, to support them, and to support the children and the siblings. The second point is to be able to raise awareness with um, through the media, through companies, through governmental agencies, through NGOs, uh, th- with the public, to talk about childhood cancer. It shouldn't be a topic that we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. We should talk about what are the symptoms and the signs so that parents, when if they see that their child is sick and it's uh, unjustified, they should think, okay, I want to investigate further. And the third point is to be able to create partnerships and organize events that would engage the community to be able to talk about childhood cancer. And very importantly, I want to be able to offer, and I'm working on several partnerships, to offer free health, uh, mental health uh, support to families and to the children, because here it's not as easy sometimes, not, not as attainable. There's a lot of work to be done by the insurance companies, I think. Definitely, and yes. Well, let's talk about that um, advice for any families who are going through it, which does bring us back to the theme of global cancer and childhood cancer awareness yes. day today. Yes. Um, I mean, what do you wish you'd known? You know, on, on that on that day where you got Sam's diagnosis. Um, first of all, my message to families is that uh, to, to parents specifically and loved ones, take care of yourselves so that you can also take care of uh, your, the children going through cancer. They say on the flight, in case of emergency, you wear the oxygen mask first before you put it for your child. You need to be strong. You need to be determined and as to, a, to a certain extent optimistic. And the child will feed off after uh, when they That's see that a parent is, is happy. We used to organize parties for our, child, for our child in the hospital so that he doesn't feel like he's there to suffer and mm-hmm. to get his treatment. It's changing the narrative. Changing the narrative is I, very important. Changing I, the perspective. I spoke to a really amazing child psychologist um, a few months ago at the Parented Unconference. Yes. Uh, Dr. Chris Willard. And he talked about that analogy of, yes. of, the, of the face mask. And he was like... He also kind of extended it into imagine this really terrible turbulence on a flight, and you, the, what you get over the over the microphone is the pilot being like, <laughs> "Panic, panic!" Yes, so, yes. You know, your your job as a parent is, and that's not about lying to your child, but to be a bit of a port in the storm. Of course, of course, and parents have a very big role to play as well with uh, raising awareness at the children, at the school level, with the children, so that the children can support one another and so that the community as a whole... And to advocate for them as well. Exactly. And it shouldn't be a taboo topic anymore. And take it day by day. It's uh, it's not an easy treatment for sure, but we are there for you as Abtalana. I am there for the parents and for the children. And as a community, I have, uh, I'm just incredibly impressed by the support that Abtalana has received uh, so far. And I'm sure uh, uh, the best is yet to come. Tell us that then, if, if someone wants to reach out to you, whether it's through the social enterprise, whether it's finding out the book. I know you're doing school visits yes, as well. Yes, that's right. How yes. can people reach out to you, Lama? Uh, they can reach out to me through the website, www.abtaluna.com, A-B-T-A-L-U-N-A, through Instagram. And if they would like to purchase the book, it's available now through the Abtaluna's website. And soon it will be available in stores. I would really love it if I could connect you with my daughter's school because I feel like especially when there is a child who's Count going through childhood cancer to have discussions around, you know, 
there's some of the common questions. Of course. And for you to be there as a mum, of course. I think is, is so, so valuable. And for Connie to speak about her own experience, her own journey, and uh, we should give the children the voice also to speak. And I just want to also request that if there's anyone listening to, listening to us who wants to contribute in any way, there's a partner's form on the website that they can fill if they want to offer services for the families and the children. If they would like to contribute in any way, I'm here to listen to them and to look into how we can collaborate. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. How is Sam today? He's a wonderful young boy who is very happy to tease his younger brother. Uh, yeah, um, that sounds, sounds about right. <laughs> yes, an utter inspiration. Well, he's got a mum who's an amazing inspiration thank as you. well. So thank you so much for joining us today. I don't know if I should say happy global childhood cancer awareness day, but it's, it is something certainly not to be celebrated. But as we say, it's such an important cause to raise awareness by and you're doing that every single day. For sure. It's about recognition, um, honouring the children going through cancer as well as their loved ones and the medical staff who are taking care of them day in, day out. I also want to just really thank the medical team who has been there by our side, uh, his oncologist and the whole medical team at the hospital. Lama Andari, she is the author of Super Kids. She's also the founder and social entrepreneur at Abtulina. If you want details of that, you can just send me a message requesting it and I'll be very, very happy to connect you. Now, many people consider the trauma of a car accident to be purely physical, but just about any car accident can have a deep psychological effect on the human mind. Talking about this this afternoon with OnStar, this is the safety and connectivity technology because they've launched a three-part webinar series with Lighthouse Arabia. It's called Healing After Trauma and it's aimed at anyone who has been directly or indirectly impacted by a road traffic accident. We're joined now by Harine Harris from OnStar and Anna White, who's a senior occupational therapist at Lighthouse and the director of Mental Health First Aid Services there at Lighthouse Arabia. And I'm so glad this is being raised as a topic because there are very, very few people I know that haven't been affected by a road traffic accident. And I absolutely count myself in that number, thankfully not here in Dubai, although I have had a couple of prangs. But in the UK, I was in a number of accidents, um, one in particular, which really, really affected me for actually quite a long time and led me to be quite fearful about driving on certain types of roads and being surrounded by certain vehicles. And that was years ago, and I still get upset thinking about it now. So thank you for acknowledging just how traumatic, for want of a better word, these things can be. And Harina, I wanted to start with you. And for anyone who's unfamiliar with OnStar. Can you explain a little bit about what the technology does? Great. Thank you for having me, Helen. You're and welcome. it's uh, great to be here talking about such an important topic of road safety and mental health. So with OnStar, we've been around for 25 years. We are actually the pioneering in-vehicle safety and connectivity technology in General Motors vehicles. So our technology really helps customers and improve their lives. And talking specifically about the safety aspect, our cars are getting cleverer and cleverer. So there's a lot of cool technology which can actually call for help, even if you can't in an accident, can put you through to trained advisors who can stay with you, who can be that um, support that you need in your time of uh, distress. And I think that combination of technology backed by the human touch is what we pay a lot of attention to. And also something that made us even take this next step because your psychological well-being is, you know, extremely important, even if technology can do a lot of work for you. I think that's exactly it. You know, you're there kind of on the scene and in that moment of need, but it's it's the after 
where it can can be a bit of a missing missing piece, which is where lighthouses is coming is coming in. And Anna, I wondered how often do people come into clinic after a trauma like a road traffic accident, and, and what are some of the things they might be talking about that they're going through? Thank you so much. Um, Definitely, it's something that we see quite commonly. There's always traumas. There always has been. There's always road traffic accidents. Um, I think what we have to remember is that everyone's response to a traumatic event is very unique. We always say that it's 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 as unique as a fingerprint. There's never a wrong or a right way to respond to a traumatic event. Now, most people, Helen, will respond and, and re-engage in their, in their normal activities of daily living within two to four weeks. But for a lot of people, those traumatic experiences that they have, whether it be with their mental health or their physical health, can be prolonged. And when it does prolong past this four-week period, it would be an indication that professional help is needed. And I guess that's where we often step in at the Lighthouse to provide um, that initial support to help someone grow through mm-hmm. um, their healing process rather than go over it. It's it's about growing through that experience. I think you've touched on something really important there and, and it's the fact that there you know, we kind of think about there being this hierarchy of trauma. Oh, you know, well, you know, everyone everyone walked away from the vehicle or, you know, ev- you know, you were back at work and there was only bumps and bruises. But actually as you say, it's so unique about what you go through because there's the fear factor. There is the the what if. There is not addressing trauma at that moment, so things go untreated and can then snowball. So I, I wondered how, in, in that case, you've managed to put together the format of the webinars to be as inclusive and useful as possible. How have you worked uh, with Harine and the OnStar team to kind of pull together what people really need? Exactly. Thank you. Um, I think this opportunity and, and collaboration, it, it, it really does just fits so well together. So what we've done is we've launched three webinars. Now, one of them has uh, was just yesterday, the 14th, that is available on our YouTube channel. And we've two more coming up. But I guess the content of these are all shaped around trauma, but more specifically around road traffic accidents mm-hmm. associated with trauma. Now, that can be for a person who maybe was directly affected or someone indirectly for example, like a loved one. So in these three um, uh, webinars, we're guiding people through the process. So the first one that was launched was really um, quite like an introduction to trauma. What is it? What to expect? How do I look after myself? Mm -hmm. Or how do I look after the people around me that might be experiencing trauma? difficulties following a traumatic event. The next webinar, we're really going to look at a deeper dive, you could say, into the reactions. What do they mean? Because I guess the more that we know about our reactions and our own self-awareness, the more that we are able to understand, Mm -hmm. we're able to put some of that jigsaw together and move forward, or at least know when we're not okay and know when we do need a little bit of extra support. And the last webinar, so the next one will be on um, the 28th of February, that's a Tuesday at 10 a.m. And the following one will be on um, in March, on the 14th of March at 10 a.m. as well, where we're really going to be looking at the physical responses um, and really more looking at the somatic healing, um, which is going to be really interesting as well. So, of course, individuals have the option of attending all three of those, or maybe there's one particular aspect of trauma that they'd Mm -hmm. like to learn a little bit more about. And if that's the case, they can just attend one. That's really up to the individual or the person that might be affected. We 
are talking trauma this afternoon, specifically relating to road traffic accidents, something that is unfortunately all too common, not just here in the UAE, but internationally. Now, um, OnStar, the safety and connectivity technology, has launched a three-part webinar series with Lighthouse Arabia, and we're speaking now to Harine from OnStar. And Anna White is the senior occupational therapist at Lighthouse. Um, and I wondered, um, Harine, how yesterday's first webinar went and who you had in mind when you put this collaboration together, looking at what happens after an accident, what's the reaction been like? I think what we've really seen is that, you know, people first acknowledging that they need help, <laughs> you know, that's the first step of everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the fact that the webinar got filled really fast with the number of people uh, that were attending is something that we were pleasantly surprised with. And also hearing that, you know, this is just a first step, you know, one webinar is not going to change your whole approach to trauma. But just seeing participants go from that initial, you know, leaning in, being a bit scared to talk about it, and then leaving with some tools that can actually help them address it on an ongoing basis has been really fulfilling. And we're happy with the very first step. And looking forward to how we can continue not just raising awareness but you know the awareness that you can take these steps Mm -hmm. to to help and heal after an accident and it must be very validating as well for people to understand that other people feel the same and that it's you know it's it's okay to not be okay and in in some ways and I think sometimes feeling invalidated after a trauma or whatever that might be and it could be you know birth trauma or neglect you know that be feeling belittled or invalidated can often make that trauma healing process so much longer and much more painful. So thank you, for, as I said, for raising this as, as a topic. And we've had a couple of messages that I want to get to if we can. Um, a message here saying, is it ever too late to get psychological help after an accident? Great question there on 4001. No name. Thank you for that. I would say that it is never too late to get help. It is never too late to help yourself or to refer yourself for professional support. Um, And what I always say to a lot of the clients that I work with as well is that often people after traumatic um, incidents, they can live their life, they move forward, they grow, but sometimes there might be something missing or sometimes one trigger, one memory, one flashback can really bring them back into that moment. It can be really destabilizing. It can be really overwhelming. And sometimes, even though it may be a little bit painful, but sometimes we do have to go back Mm -hmm. if we really want to go forward. Mm -hmm. So how I would answer that question is definitely come, understand, learn a little bit more about trauma, how it's affected you. And as you said, Helen, having that opportunity to connect with other people who may have gone through something similar can be a really powerful experience for an individual who experienced trauma. Um, I want to say thank you as well to Rob, who's been in touch saying, um, hi, all. I was in a bad smash about five years ago. And while I drive every day with no problems, I sometimes get flashes of what happened then. Will these ever go away? Not to share too much, but someone died at the scene. So a a really tragic accident there that, that Rob witnessed and experienced. Those flashes and those can be really unexpected, really intrusive. Is that something that you'd be relating to perhaps a post-traumatic stress disorder, Anna? And is this something that will, you know, go away with time? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And and thank you for, for not going into too many details. And I think that's a really important point to mention because often we forget that there's secondary trauma. So being mindful of how much we're sharing with other people is, is really important in this process as well. But what I would say is, 
there are many things that can be considered as typical. Um, when we have ongoing difficulties, it really depends. And the big question here is, are these causing a barrier to my life, my activities of daily living, whether that be my leisure, my work, my relationships, whatever you consider to be your values in life? And if the answer is yes, and those flashbacks are, then definitely it, it could be something um, that is post-traumatic that needs a bit of healing. So I would again say understand it a little bit more. If it's something you can do yourself by attending our webinars, by attending future art workshops that we have, try and really understand where am I with my trauma experience? Is this something that I fully understand or do I need a little bit of extra support mm -hmm. to really go back and process this and as I say really grow through this healing process. Um, and I also wanted to ask you about how family and friends can support someone following an accident and maybe it's immediately after or it's in the weeks the months even even years you know we've heard from listeners who've had things happened years and years ago that are still affecting them but you know what are some of the I guess do's and don'ts that that people can be aware of? Yeah I think that's a really good question so what can we do and what should we avoid doing maybe immediately after an incident? Because there often is people there, whether that's direct people who were at the scene, for example, or maybe supporting after. So some of the do's that I would say are really to try and in that moment to stay calm, even though you might not feel calm, but really to communicate with this person as an equal. Say their name, make them feel a little bit grounded in that present moment. If you don't know their name, ask them their name. But really, as an individual, what we need to do is manage our own feelings of helplessness, because often, you know, as humans, we're problem solvers. We want someone to feel better. We want to fix it. We want to say everything's going to be OK. But realistically, that's not what a person needs to hear in the moment. Mm -hmm. You have to manage your own feelings of maybe helplessness. You need to be able to be with that person and create a space. And that could be a silent space where you are just sitting with them, maybe embracing your body language rather than your words. Reassure the person in the moment that there is help coming um, and allow them just to share that space with you. Some of the things that we may want to avoid in that moment is putting yourself in harm's way, most importantly. We never, we always need to look after our own safety first. Um, avoiding touching this person, um, maybe avoiding saying things like calm down, everything will be okay, because realistically it may not be. Um, and that can really affect a person's trauma as well. Um, I would say then never force someone to talk and always never, never encourage someone to keep it a secret. Mm -hmm. um, they don't have to speak about it, but we should never try and create an idea around trauma that it is a secret and that's something that's in the past and that we don't need to speak about. So that's what I would say do's and don'ts immediately after. In terms of general support that you can give someone with trauma, we have to remember that rarely anything that you say is going to fix the problem or make the person feel better. Mm -hmm. But what can really support a person after is listening with empathy, just creating a space where you are there, you are present and you are there. You are validating, as we've already mentioned, validating their feelings observing their behaviours, knowing what might be typical responses of trauma versus does my friend or my partner or my family member need a bit of extra support, mm -hmm. but really being there with them in that space rather than trying to solve a problem. And um, that's what we need to do. We need to be present in that moment. Thank you so, so much for 
being with us this afternoon. Um, I know you're very busy, um, so thank you. Um, and we've had a number of people asking about joining that webinar. So I wondered if I could ask you, I mean, to tell us a little bit about how someone can get involved in this collaboration between OnStar and Lighthouse. All the details <laughs> of the webinar <laughs> can be found at lighthousearabia.com slash events. So please do look up the site. Um, like we say that this is such an important topic. It's something that uh, we've got to consciously make decisions every day when we get out on the road. Um, so we're happy to have these tools, happy to be collaborating. And please do look it up. And an interesting one that's coming up is really an art therapy based workshop with Lighthouse. And we found this great intersection of bringing a hard message like safety, but through the platform of art. So please look it up. And I think that we found a great magic between these topics. And we're looking forward to how this pans out and how it actually helps thank people you. undergoing trauma. Shireen, thank you so, so much. And I really appreciate your insights. And if anyone wants details of that, please just send me a message. Um, and you can just say road and I will happily send you the link so you can find out more. Wishing you both all the very best. Our next guest had her whole life turned upside down one morning. She's here to share her story and hoping it can help someone else. Serene Sultan is a mum of two. At the age of 41, she had no clue that a strange symptom, a stiff neck one morning, would take her down a dark and really unexpected road. Serene, thank you for being here today and sharing what you went through. So tell us a little bit about that morning. Um. Well, thank you for having me, Helen. Um, well, I just, I woke up seven months ago um, with a really stiff neck and I just thought I'd slept in a funny angle. Um, I ignored it for a couple of days and went to see a physiotherapist and nothing was getting better. And then I started having shooting pain down my arms and pins and needles in my hands, um, at which point I knew that this was more than a stiff neck. So I went for an MRI um, and they told me that I had two discs in my neck which had actually gone into my spinal cord and they were compressing the cord um, and so they said if I didn't have surgery on it pretty much immediately I could I was at a high risk of paralysis um, so I think I just sort of at that point kicked into autopilot I wasn't even really thinking about feelings mm. I was like what's where, the plan where am I going to go for surgery mm -hmm. and you know, which surgeon and how am I going to do this? Um, Goodness me. What, so, yeah. I mean, I think that's a very common response of, OK, let's be pragmatic about it. Yes. You know, we've got we've got kids. We've got to crack on and, and just get that done. But it must have been incredibly okay. frightening. It was. And our first sort of reaction was to go back to the UK to meet surgeons there. But funnily enough, in the end, we opted to have it in Dubai just because, you know, in terms of the aftercare and mm -hmm. support, it's just so much easier. Tell us about the surgery then. Is it complicated, complex, long? It or? is. I was I think I was in the theatre for about five, six hours. Um, they actually go through the front of your neck and because they can't approach your spinal cord from the back, unfortunately, they have to kind of pin your esophagus and your voice box to the side and then go in through the front. So it was a very invasive surgery. What about the recovery then? Um, so the doctors will tell you that the recovery is sort of six weeks. Um, but actually, I think I'm still recovering. Really? Um, and I think the part of it that you don't really understand is 
um, you may sort of start seeing huge improvement on the physical side. But actually, what happened two months afterwards, I just mentally deteriorated so much. I had severe health anxiety. um, And, you know, and I think I was just really struggling with what had actually happened Mm -hmm. to me. It's an identity thing, isn't it? When you're used to being kind of vibrant and capable and active and then that's taken away from you. And, And I think nobody ever really prepares you for one morning just waking up and your life being completely different. I mean, I initially couldn't lift a milk bottle to make a cup of tea and I, l- I have like five, six cups of tea a day. So. But, that, but it is those things that, that must have been so frightening and thinking, you know, could this be just the way I am now? You know, what, what do we know then about what caused it? Um, so I think, you know, every surgeon I met asked me, have you been in a car accident? Because we never see this kind of herniated disc unless someone has been in a major car accident or a horse riding accident, etc. Some severe sport. Um, But I think there's a couple of things. First of all, I think women are predisposed to degeneration a lot quicker than men are. Mm -hmm. Um, Even hormonally, as we sort of go into kind of perimenopause, obviously we're more um, prone to osteoarthritis, etc. But um, so I think part of it is genetic. But I think the other side of it is I think we didn't I used to do a lot of hit and used to horse ride etc and I think there is a compounded effect mm-hmm. of you know doing high intensity workouts which you know unfortunately it's really great at getting results in terms of weight loss or getting fit but you know in your 20s and 30s you don't think about the implications that kind of exercise might have in your Mm. 40s and 50s. To come back to the mental side, if you don't mind, Zareen, tell us a little bit about how you've kind of built yourself back up from there. What's been useful? Um, So, I mean, I think the first thing was I realised really quickly that I was acting pretty crazy in the sense that um, I, I think I must have had like seven MRIs in the space of two, three months, everywhere from the brain down to the lumbar spine and every time I had a headache I was convinced I had you know a brain tumor or you know and I pretty much lived at the hospital and I I couldn't even go I didn't want to travel because I didn't want to be away from the hospital so I realized that that was not normal Um, and I very quickly reached out to you know asking for help Um, I started seeing a holistic healer, a therapist, you know, you name it. <laughs> um, You're smiling here today, so it's clearly yeah. all come together in yeah. time. I think you've touched on something really important there is kind of knowing in yourself when something's not right and knowing yes. knowing how to and where to go for some help. Exactly. And I think, you know, therapy is obviously expensive, um, but it's an investment in yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I think what what I've realized over time is that there's so many self-help tools out there now that if you can't afford to do therapy, there's amazing podcasts and really great I, I love a recommendation, documentaries. Tell us, tell us about yes. some of your top picks. Um, so I absolutely loved the Stutz documentary on oh, Netflix. The Jonah Hill Jonah one. Hill I haven't one. watched it. It keeps on popping up there. Um, so it's basically very candid conversation between Jonah Hill and his therapist. Um, and one of the things he says, which I found really funny, is, you know, we 
we our friends who are not qualified to give us advice give us loads of advice and then we go and see a therapist who's qualified to give advice but they will sit there silent mm-hmm. and you and will not actually comment on anything you say um but the reason he wanted to make a documentary on Phil Sturts his um therapist was because he actually had a very different model he was pr- pretty vocal and opinionated on on you know on on everything and also gave you toolkits and used a lot of visual um therapy methods to help you with depression and anxiety and how to kind of if you're at a difficult point in your life what can you do to get yourself out of it mm-hmm. um and one of the things he said which actually really resonated with me was um that the, you know there's three things which we just have to accept as part of our lives which is the only constant is actually uncertainty so we we need to live with uncertainty and get comfortable with that mm-hmm. the second is is pain because the reality is we will all suffer pain at some point in our life whether that's the loss of a parent or a loved one or a, a health issue or and just realizing that that is also something we need to live with oh, that's and hard. yeah it is and you know and the third that we constantly need to evolve mm-hmm. um so i thought you know in an age where we talk a lot about kind of positive energy and manifestation there is this other side which is acceptance yeah, that absolutely. certain things but, are but just stoicism. tough yeah sometimes yeah. you yeah. Well, not every day is going to be, you know, <laughs> sunshine and skipping through meadows. In fact, it's very rare that we have a sunshine and skipping through meadows yes. day. And yeah. sometimes it's it's enough just to be okay. And, exactly. And how are you now? Yeah, I'm doing much better. Um, I think, you know, I've sort of come to terms with it all now. And mm-hmm. I've also sort of accepted that, you know, unfortunately, some, I don't think I'll ever be like I was pre-surgery after such a major uh, procedure and having two foreign bodies in my neck. I have two titanium discs. So I'm never going to feel completely the same, but I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm, you know, I think one of the biggest lessons for me was it felt like such a steep hill, but, you know, the small steps have such a great compounded effect over a period of time. Mm -hmm. For anyone else that's suffering with health anxiety, which is something that's really come to the fore, certainly post-pandemic, and you you mentioned there that kind of uncertainty is, you know, it's, it's, it's always going to be there. Any advice for anyone that's struggling with that aspect in particular, Zareen? Yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, sharing really helps. Um, I really feel sharing is the greatest connection. And I was just listening to your, um, interview just before me and where you know again we've talked about that sharing is is one of the most powerful tools you you have really so I think sitting down with friends and actually you end up realizing you know how important how important close friendships are where when you meet you don't necessarily talk about you know where you went on holiday or uh, you know what are the best restaurants in Dubai but actually you say I'm not okay and I'm really struggling those meaningful real yeah there's really meaningful conversations which can be really hard to, to be vulnerable but that's where yeah. the real connection can often really grow from exactly thank you so much for coming in no, thank I think you for it's having been me really really interesting to thank hear what you. you've been through and my goodness just doing so so well today and for raising the topic of health anxiety and something we'll definitely return to on the show um Serene, thank you so so much stay well won't you thank you Helen
joining us in studio to answer my questions, but truthfully, most importantly, yours. We've got Dr. Callum Tevendale from Nicholas and Asp. Um, so get ready. I have to say, it's, I always find it really interesting, Callum, when we have different medical experts coming in in terms of what gets people excited on the text line. And I'll tell you, skin, feet, teeth. So you're in for a busy one. How are things at the clinic? What's coming into clinic right now? Yeah, good. Um, I deal with mainly general dentistry, so it's it's just a wide range of uh, of different problems and uh, just general uh, just checkups the, as well. Yeah, let's talk general checkups. Now, okay. this is one of the few times that I'm going to feel smug because I was at the dentist just this morning for a checkup. I am practicing what I preach on the show, and all is good because I think we all have a bit of a secret worry when we get into the chair that the, we might not have any pain, but you and you and your other experts might find something. How often should we be going for a checkup? I think that's probably the issue with dentistry is quite often problems start and they are asymptomatic. You don't have any symptoms. Mm. And it's only at that point when you start to then develop symptoms, you think, oh, I should go to the dentist. And you, the dentist goes, okay, you're in pain. Yeah. <laughs> And if you'd come earlier, it would, you know, a small problem is easier to sort out than a bigger problem. Easier and cheaper as well. Yes, definitely. So, I mean, we we recommend six months Mm -hmm. checkups should really be for all adults and children. Um, There is some theories that it might be a bit more often for people that are high risk. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Surely if you've got some, you know, particular issues or you're predisposed to something, then, you know, you'd be better to, to come yeah, so I would what, what are some of the red flags or things that you need to be tuned gum into? Gum disease. So if someone has um, established gum disease, we normally recommend every three months. Okay. And that's usually that they will see the dentist every six months, but they will see the hygienist maybe four times a year. Okay. So, and they'll marry that into their dental checkups. Callum, something I'm reading a lot about at the minute is that, you know, the mouth, the teeth, the gums are often a gateway to understanding what else is happening in the body. Oh, huge. What is this something you're Massive. on board with? Um, I mean, there's lots of, of diseases that manifest in the mouth first. Um, there's some very good relationships between gum disease and diabetes mm. and it being a two-way relationship. So if you've got really poor gum health, you'll actually have quite poorly controlled diabetes in the same way that if you have good diabetes it can help with your gum control um lots of gi disorders so things like uh, colitis um crohn's disease yeah the big one the the big one is obviously oral cancer mm-hmm. and that usually presents asymptomatic for a long time survival rates are poor for it because of late presentation okay. and that's where coming regularly is important We've had a lot of messages for you. We're going to be busy oh, for the next few minutes. Um, I knew we'd get this. Ben is saying, honest answer, manual or electric toothbrush? So the truthful answer to that is, if you are excellent at cleaning your teeth, then a manual toothbrush is just the same as an electric. However, but, are most people actually excellent? But <laughs> that, that is the real question. The answer is, I use an electric. The electric toothbrush makes it easier for you to be really good at cleaning. And I'm all for if there's something that makes life easier, then definitely use it. So I recommend electric to patients. What about in kids? Yes. Same for kids as well. There's lots of um, very child-friendly toothbrushes. Also, it's another way of getting them to actually interact with brushing their teeth. Mm-hmm. Some of them play music. That, oh, have a little countdown. Yeah, so you can get that sort of two minutes. I mean, some of the adult ones that, that you know, with technology the way it is, it's getting ridiculous there's apps there's things but good things are definitely you can have like pressure sensors so people that brush too hard the 
toothbrush is clever enough that it realises you're pressing too hard, mm-hmm. it will disengage and stop. So it helps with those ones. And also definitely the time factor, because if anyone thinks that they can count two minutes when they're brushing and they actually then do it, they'll realise that they are way off. Do you know what? We bought for five dirhams a little suckered um, sand timer. It was from that flying tiger shop in, uh, in Dubai Hills Mall. My kids love it. Just chuck it upside down, and I'm like, "Yep, you can, you can." That's the cheaper way of buying a, a good toothbrush, but not like the really expensive exactly. ones. Exactly. Joining us live in the studio for our dental clinic, we've got Dr. Callum Tevendale. He's from Nicholas and Asp, and we're, we're keeping you busy, Callum. Let's just yeah, say, definitely. how do you feel about a little quick fire round? We can get through as many yeah, texts as possible. It. All right. Sylvia's been in touch saying, I've been suffering with TMJ for a few months now. Dentist recommended a customised night guard, which I've been wearing on and off, but I'm still feeling pain, especially after a night's wear. I had a jaw joint MRI showing complete dislocation of right articular disc, um, of closed mouth view and normal capturing on open mouth view, but also signs of degeneration. What treatment would you recommend other than surgery, ideally? Mm. This is a complicated one. Sounds like it's come from a dentist, that question. Yeah. <laughs> well, what is TMJ for us non-dental so types? Y- your TMJ is, your, is the temporomandibular joint. And basically, it's a ball-ended joint that is involved in opening and closing of the mouth. Um, TMD is disorders of that joint. And as she sounds like she she knows what she's talking about. Absolutely. It can be a very difficult thing to treat. Um, No one remedy always works the same for for everybody. We normally exhaust non-surgical therapy before we go down the route of surgical. So I would probably ask her if there was any trauma to her face in that sort of lead up to the the pain. Mm-hmm. Um, it can be that it takes time before it settles down. There are certain, there are different types of splint. So she may just be on the most basic and there are certain splint therapies that are designed for specific things to do with the TMD. So she would maybe need to look at that route first. So it could be that she's on a splint that maybe isn't making any difference and she maybe needs to go down the route of something like a stabilisation splint if she doesn't have that. Um, but the TMD is quite complex because it's uh, the TMD is linked to the jaws, obviously, but it's also linked to the muscles of the face. Uh-huh. And then um, you're looking down, presumably, into neck and shoulders. Yes, and- so it can be de- debilitating, to say the least. You can have things like chronic headaches, um, facial pain, neck and shoulder, back. So definitely I would say to her, she needs to keep exploring the non-surgical option and maybe discuss with the dentist if there's anything else she can try. Um and then there are surgical approaches, which range from not too invasive to invasive. Mm-hmm. Um, my sister, funnily enough, has got TMD quite severe, where she has complete like lock. People call it lock jaw, and she's had like a round of uh, what we call arthrocentesis, which is basically where they flush the jaw uh, joint with saline. Um, you can't have that too many times, so you try and hold off for as long as possible. It's mm-hmm. it's all about getting the patient older before they do it. Mm-hmm. But in this case, I think she sticks to non-surgical, discuss with a dentist, and then go from there. It's interesting you talking there about you know the the night guards and headaches because I used to get terrible, terrible tension headaches. But since having Invisalign, so wearing that guard at night, massive, massive relief. Yeah, I mean, there's some studies that show that adults can have. Um, we have like clenching and grinding issues 
was up to 75% of the population. Well, we probably just don't know we're doing it. Yeah. Wake up feeling knackered and, that's, and, and that's with a headache thing. and we've been clenching our jaw for the last And some of the protective um, functions that we have when we're awake, they're not there at night. Mm-hmm. And you can clench and grind on your teeth like, and you generate a force of like up to 20 to 40 times more. Which brings us to Seema's question saying, okay. my back tooth is chipped. Should I get it fixed? It's not hurting, but the edge is sharp and sometimes catches my tongue. Yes. Yes, she should. It's a simple one, yes, yeah. um, because it might be chipped, but there might be a reason for that. Mm-hmm. So it could be that there's decay that's undermined the tooth and it's mm-hmm. broken, and that needs to be treated before she starts to develop pain. Um, and Vina's question, I love this one, saying, "How important is it to change your child's toothpaste as they get older? How accurate are the numbers on the tube?" Now, this is funny because my daughter's about to turn six, and she loves her toothpaste. She loves her like age, you know, two to five, and she doesn't like the age six to ten or whatever it is. And I'm now like, sorry, sorry, kid, you're going you're gonna to have to move up in the world like the cowpole. <laughs> so, so my answer to that would be, you've got a toothpaste that they like using. Uh-huh. As long as it has a fluoride concentration in it, and we normally look at um, something above a thousand parts per million, it's usually 1450 on the back. So if they're going to check it, make sure it'll be a little number. Mm-hmm. As long as the tooth is fluoridated, because fluoride has an effect on the teeth, um, which is good for it. It helps it more resistant to things like decay. Then, I mean, in special care dentistry, you have adults that can't take the minty taste of toothpaste and they are using kids' toothpastes. It's completely fine. It's, it's more about the fluoride that's in it. Check the numbers. All right, last yes. question. Mia saying, I've heard that using bicarb of soda is good for natural teeth whitening. What does your dentist think? So tooth colour. By the way, you've got gleaming teeth. I just look after them. <laughs> Although I've bleached them. I will admit that. That's fair enough. Um, so bicarbonate soda, it's probably going to be more effective at taking off things that are extrinsic. So that stains on the outside surface of the tooth. Rather than changing the colour yes, of the tooth. Yes, the colour comes from internally beneath the, de- uh, beneath the enamel. And that's where usually you have bleaching by the dentist done. So it might take some of the extrinsic off and make it look a bit nicer. Mm-hmm. It may not make them pearly white. All right. Thank you. Can't no, really appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. It's been a bit of a whistle-stop talk, so we've had so many messages, but we'd love to have you back to talk about no, some of these okay. things. Back to clinic now. In so. Back to clinic, back to yeah. real life. Um, you can find Dr. Callum there at Nicholas and Asp. This content is for informational purposes only. If you would like to seek medical treatment, please contact a certified healthcare provider for personalised advice and diagnosis. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, groundbreaking science, life-changing nutrition. Joining us live in the studio is Dr. Sergio De Silva from Intervet, here to take your questions and mine, look at the latest headlines, and yes, go to the text line. Dr. Sergio, what's come into clinic? You always have some interesting creatures cr- crossing a, <laughs> crossing your threshold. What's been coming in? A uh, baby goat. A baby goat? A baby goat, yeah. Okay. I, I was going to say, are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. <laughs> what was going on with the baby goat? Uh, pneumonia. Oh, yes, gosh. Some, yeah. Uh, sometimes it's, they have a TB, for example, so this is not a good. But in that case, it was just a oh, case of pneumonia. Oh. Bronchitis, pneumonia, and baby goat. Bronchitis and a baby goat. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, I wanted to get your take on some news because coming out of the Netherlands, interestingly, um, owning unhealthy design animals, so flat-faced dogs or cats, this folded ears 
are soon going to be banned in the Netherlands. Um, the culture, um, cultural nature and, fu- and food quality minister said, we make life miserable for innocent animals purely because we think they are beautiful or cute. That's why we're taking a big step <clears throat> towards the Netherlands where no pet has to suffer for his or her appearance. Um, really interesting. So looking to ban the ownership of what they call designer breeds as well as photos of them in advertising and on social media. Um, the breeding of designer pets was actually banned in the Netherlands in 2014 and now they're looking to close that loophole. Um, and we've got a clip here from Madeleine Bernstein who's the president of the Society of Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in LA saying that dogs are being bred more now for Instagram rather than health. People don't talk about dogs as cute or adorable. They talk about them as Instagram worthy. You'll see the story of the Labrador and that's what really started it. If you read this, he regrets having done it. It's true, actually. Um, so what do we need to know, Dr. Sergio, about designer pets and some of their health challenges in particular? Um, I'm breeding animals for, for, I believe, for all of my life. And this is not new for me to, to talk about this, 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 this topic. So especially when talking about pugs, for example. So we need to well balance. We need to well balance the, you know, of course, the safety of the animal and uh, and what you design. But uh, people nowadays talk about uh, uh, the fashion design or something like that. But we have to understand that the breeding that these animals, dogs or cats or even goats or any anything, we started doing this one in, in 200, 300 years back, just to to make the life of the animals better mm-hmm. than before. Just this is just exaggeration. For example. I have to say pugs that comes to my consultation room that even if the best plastic surgery in the world, we cannot fix the nose. So what, this so is what, too much. Inbreeding is, is the problem. And when you say kind of fix the nose, what are some of the issues that you know, we mentioned there, this kind of flat-faced cats and dogs in particular? That, that, what, what are they facing? Myocarditis. So this, uh, just in general, just don't, don't, don't try to talk uh, technical words, but it's like, uh, heart problems. Uh, some lung problems. So, for example, in bulldogs, it's very common to have a disease that they call, uh, it's basically the collapse of the bulldog. So, uh, the, the bulldog, it, they're breathing quite badly for a couple of days. So, they bring to us. And I had a, a very hard case in this, they call the uh, bulldog syndrome. So, and basically, the, the lungs, this is smaller than the head. Okay. And the relationship between the lungs and the heart and the brain itself is, is bad. So basically, the, the dogs sometimes they collapse because they don't have enough it, it's a, it's air. A fu- it's a functional... Functional, yeah. And message here from Victoria saying, interesting timing, I was at the vet with my little pooch um, last week. Sat near us were a couple with a bulldog and the poor bulldog was literally gasping for breath. It was really distressing to see in here. No yeah. reflection on the couple. They said the bulldog was a rescue and they clearly adored her, but an awful situation for the poor dog who wasn't that old and constantly fighting for breath. Um, any other breeds that you think we should be particularly tuned into when it comes to health issues and that yeah, breeding? I, I believe if you talk about the, the let's talk, let's take one species of, let's say dogs, uh, overbreeding dogs, especially, uh, I can say, even Pomeranians, for example, King Charles, it's it's a big problem. But look, it's not only for the breeders. Let's let's say something interesting. For example, the most popular, the, the most 10 popular uh, uh, breeds in UK it's under stress. I can say under stress. The, the breed is under stress. Why? They're overbreeding because most of the animals belongs only to UK. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially not only breeds, I'm talking about, you know, purebred. So, for example, German Shepherd, 
uh, Dalmatians, uh, not only bulldogs and French bulldogs. We can see silent disease that is, is not very common to see. For example, Dalmatian can come deaf. Uh, Microphthalmia, it means the, the eyes are super small, can come from German Shepherd. So uh, uh, genetic disease that we cannot see right now. So, for example, collapse of the, the, the back, like dysplasia, for example, is very mm-hmm. common. And not only the design dogs. I feel that the discussion has to be a bit you know, bigger. And if someone is forbidding, why they don't like to forbid something else? Because you close the, the, the door. And and people find a way. Exactly. Um, a question, Change the name of the, the breed. Exactly. A question here from Barbara saying, is it true then uh, a mongrel, a.k.a. a mixed breed or a Dubai special, is actually healthier than a pure breed? Uh, honest, I can say no. It depends. It depends, exactly. <laughs> yeah. depends how healthy the, is, is the breed before they come. Yeah. Let's say they come from a bulldog that has no no genetic, good genetic. It come from another, I can no, say. Uh, yeah, it could, could come know, from another issue. From exactly. A, okay. So it makes and they have so. But in general, nature is very is very uh, intelligent for us. What nature does is as much you mix the breed. So, for example, uh, Labradoodles. It's quite good because we have from one side the poodle and another side the Labrador or Golden Retriever. doesn't mm-hmm. matter. So, and we can mix from two quite distance uh, genetic system and mixing the one new one that could be good this is pets and vets on afternoons with helen farmer with pro plan and the man on hand to answer all of your questions is dr sergio de silva you can also give us a call it's zero four eight seven one double five double zero, which is what lorraine has done i picked up a stray cat this morning in pretty bad shape um it had mainly mouth problems and needs a lot of teeth removed. But another issue it had was it had lice. And I've lived here um, 30 years, and I've never, ever heard of a cat with lice. This is first time. So I just wondered uh, how they get it, how it's treated. Obviously, the cat's at the vet now. But never heard anything about lice before. Thanks, Lorraine. So poor little one. Lots of mouth problems in the vets now, but lice. Talk to us about that, Dr. Sergio. Uh First of all, is she detecting or the vet is detecting the lice? That's anyway. But the the product it's a f- uh, fipronil is the name of the product. You can find this in Frontline or any other uh, top spot or spray. It's quite quite simple to to solve. Is it as uncommon as as Lorraine's said that? Do you see it much in clinic? Many like many lice coming in. No. So it's not for cats. No, it's not common. How weird. I wonder why. Uh, we live in the desert, so. It's 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 quite hard to even for can can they can they be dangerous if they're not treated? What could it lead to? Yeah, the the, the first thing that they can transmit is some worms. So there's some tapeworm, roundworms that that comes from 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 the lice straight away for 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 him because basically cats lick themselves, so mm-hmm. they ingest it, and and that's it. and us and for us as well. But lice is basically specific, specific so now. I've had a lot of bird questions for you. You are known as the bird man around (laughs) town. So, Dr. Sergio um, Shabin saying, good afternoon. Uh, Can I please ask what tests other than PBFD are required to run for a new parrot before introducing it to other flock members? Thank you and thanks for the show. You're very welcome, Shabin. So I'm going to ask you what PBFD is and what other tests you'd recommend that you run on the bird before making some new friends. Okay, so... Peak, peak and beak feather disease, this is the, the name of the disease, is a cyclovirus. So the cyclovirus can be passed from parrot to parrot through the 
ingest mm-hmm. or evening air or the close contact for, 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 for the animals. So, and this is make a lot of my, 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 my clients freaking out about the disease. But the disease itself, when it comes to my, my consultation room, I can say 90% is a false diagnosis. So the best is not test the animals because remember that to test any, any animal, you have incubation period for some disease. So that's why we request a quarantine. Okay. So 15 days is good enough. And tell us, yeah, I was about to ask about kind of the duration. We've also had a question asking about the results, the price, you know, all of that. Can you give us a quick breakdown for yeah. anyone? Okay, so picking big fat disease, yes, we can do in, in, in Intervet. Uh, we have a package for, for, for this. Can I say the price? Yeah, of course yeah, you okay, can. Yeah. So we do DNA and you do picking big fat disease and cost about 400 years both. Both tests together. It's like a combo. And when you say quarantine, does that happen at the vets? The, the bird would stay with you or it needs to be quarantined separately at home? It depends as well. So if someone has, uh, let's say, a quite expensive flock, and this is quite normal in Dubai, some guys have birds that cost between, like, let's say falcons, for example, can cost $100,000 each. Oh. So, yeah. And I, I have a couple of, of, of clients that I, I hold for one collection, 500 falcons. So when <sighs> they buy the falcons, they, they always they come, they bring the birds to me. And I allowed them, like, advise them to do some specific test for wildlife as well, especially for zoos. Bring the birds to us as fast as possible because for me, I'm, I'm, we are well trained as a vet. So I can just have a quick look and identify very easily the, so some patognomonical symptoms. And after we can decide. But the best way is bring to the vet, do a small quarantine, and after we decide the test, what, what's happened nowadays is people come from Google, Dr. Google. <laughs> mm-hmm. They come to us and they come with the mind and the test. And they want to ask us, why don't you do this test in your clinic? So sometimes the test is not available or is not even necessary for the animals. So, you know. Okay. This is a whole new world, the bird world. <laughs> It's interesting. No, it is interesting. Is it? Is it? You know, what kind of birds people are people having as pets in the UAE? In Dubai, I have oh. I, okay falcons. They bring bring to me falcon as a pet, not only as a as a heritage of birds to to hunting as a as a like a small small falcons okay. that cost like a five hundred dirhams and one thousand dirhams each. Uh, lots of of uh, scenes that it means that like a, a parrot beak, you mm-hmm. know, that round that beak. kind of hooked beak. Yeah. So, and the most common in my consultation room, it's uh, African Grey, Amazons, and Cacatoos. Uh, Mariam saying, um, is it possible to have a quarantine at Intervet? Yes, depends of the, 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 the disease, yes. Uh, which one is dangerous is Newcastle, for example, just to, to let them know. And the incubation period can come from three days to a month. Okay, hope that helps. Staying with birds, Martha's saying, great timing. My female budgie keeps laying eggs and I don't understand what's triggering it. She's about two years old, has no male mate. I don't want her to become egg bound. Is there something I can do to stop her producing? What I've just read means absolutely nothing to me, by the way. <laughs> so I'm hoping it means something to you, Dr. Sergio. Uh, uh, how to stop the behavior in, in birds, what we do, we, we, we cause a stress. So, unfortunately, she can, the, the easiest way is put her under the lamp for like a two days, don't turn off the lamp, so she gets stressed. So she starts to do the muting, okay. and she stopped laying eggs immediately. Uh, this is uh, sounds like a cruelty, but this is the only way to stop her to do the, this stuff. The other way is remove water, for example. I don't advise to remove water. 
This is a whole new world. You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan, where the number one ingredient is always high-quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. Joining us live on the line from Intervet, not in the line, is in the studio, Dr Sergio De Silva. And I have to say, you've got some fans out there of both the people and the feathered variety. <laughs> Message here saying... Um, Oh, I love this. Chili, Chili the Amazon, Dr. Sergio saved and gave a new lease of life saying hello. Thank you for the photo. And a million thank yes. yous for taking Malak the blind grey under his care at the clinic, hoping yes. for the best outcome at the clinic. <laughs> thank you, guys. My job. Now, let's go to the furry type. Ian saying, we've got a spayed black cat in this building. She's very sick with cat flu, little eating or drinking, lost weight, difficult to get into the box for the vet. Is there any medicine she can take? Thank you. Mm. Of course, the best is <clears throat> at least to catch her to, okay, we have some, uh, we, can, we can give some shots. That is like a one-week shot. For example, penicillin in this case can help, but we, need, of course, need to catch the cat. If she cannot, uh, unfortunately, she can do like a twice a day uh, amoxicillin. Amoxicillin with clavulinate, so she just asking some vets to give her help, prescribe, mix in the wet food, and give to her until she has enough time to collect her. Okay. As she's not eating and drink, this is the trick. So what, yeah, what can you do? It's a trap bit like, her. Yeah, it's a bit like getting Calpol into a child. Yeah, yeah exactly. It, she needs to, call, to catch her. Okay. In this, maybe call some vets. Or, or, there's a lot of rescues that they, they can help. Some groups, they can, they can help. They, 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 they have enough experience to trap the cat. And we don't need only to trap with food. You can corner him, for example, or use a net, and at least it's... Oh, Ian, good luck, friend. Keep us posted. Yeah. Um, speaking of cats, Mark's been in touch, showing we adopted a street cat a year ago, and he's constantly trying to get outside and run away. He already disappeared once, and we're trying to make sure he doesn't get out. He's already wearing an air tag, but it is rather stressful. Yeah. Any suggestions? It's just fighting against the nature of this cat. Exactly. Some animals can stay very comfortable in in your house for, for life, like the Garfield. <laughs> mm-hmm. Some other ones, they just want to stay away and stay outside in the garden. They, they be your best, you know, garden cat that you have in your life. So mm-hmm. we, need, we, we need to respect him, the behavior. This is the most important. What about keeping that animal safe, though, if they are going out for longer periods of time or anything you can do just around supporting their health? <sighs> Look, uh, <laughs> in, in, no, no, it's okay. Yeah. In that case, uh, I believe he, he, he has a good chance to help the cat because he put this air tag. This is one of the things that I, I advise in the clinic. Okay. Uh, vaccinate, of course. Yeah. Deworm and do this, this basic stuff. And unfortunately, he has to, to understand. If he loves you, he'll come back. Yeah, eventually. Sure. <laughs> um, a message here turning our attention to dog saying, I fostered yesterday a lovely stray dog who was absolutely amazing. Took her for two long walks and she hasn't peed or do number two. Took her out again this morning for a 30 minute walk and still hasn't done anything. Is this normal because of the change of home? We have to pay attention in if they're not drink or if they're not eating, they cannot do the number two yeah. and does not be what goes in should come out exactly so so it is, that, to, to so is, is it make, making sure that they are suitably hydrated for for one for thing. sure dehydration could be but the, maybe he's not dehydrated the the issue is not drinking is not comfortable with the food maybe change the food as well so my advice give some wet food mm-hmm. wet food is is because this moisture has some some you know 
glucose as well in some this of this water. When yeah. we adopted our, our old girl, Lizzie, uh, I think we, it was such a strange day. We we thought she was five. She basically, she'd been taken to a shelter to, okay. and the owner just never came back to get her. So we didn't have much information about her. Um, it turned out we thought she was five. It turned out she'd been, she was eight, blah, blah, blah. But this, this happened to us. It was about 48 hours and she was drinking and eating, we thought, pretty normally. But my husband, my, the analogy my husband gave was like a bit like when you go camping and you just don't go. <laughs> <laughs> just a different environment. Sylvia's saying eating and drinking normally. So hopefully when she starts to relax a little bit, things will get moving. Yeah, and remember, from animal to animal, things can be a bit different. Mm-hmm. So stress, yes, I completely agree. This is the easiest way, but just respect. Some 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 dogs can take like two days. Sylvia, please send a photo. Would love to see your new addition. Yeah. Um, staying with dogs, and we actually mentioned German shepherds earlier. Um, a message here asking about food, basically saying, "What do you recommend as the percentage of fat and protein a seven-year-old German shepherd should have in her diet?" She's very active and has been spayed. That's from Mimi. Uh, in general, we we have uh, the, the source of protein that we have in. Sorry, don't don't talk about the source. The quantity of the protein is between eighteen to twenty three percent for any dog over seven years old. Okay. Because we need to reduce the impact on the kidneys and liver, especially kidneys in this time. But you need to pay attention on the quality of the the protein as well. If the protein is super absorbable, it you have to be careful in some breeds. So. Uh, about degrees, it depends of how you know how active is the the, the animal. So to talk about percentage, we, we need to understand that this is based on what the pet food brand is recommended, yeah. because some some uh, protein we need this kind of extra grease or or not. It depends. Well, of first lamb, you need it a little less. Fish, you need a bit more. Because I've always wondered chicken, about for example, about this. too much. Like the because um, you do get dog food that's made for specific breeds. You know, and that presumably is based on their requirements in terms of, yeah. you know, their body composition, their body size, yeah. how active they are. So can it be sometimes worth actually getting a breed-specific breed food? Um, yeah, but I, I believe all this should, yeah, could, could it be just to, 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 to give a, a help? Yes, could it be the best just to, to look for some breed? Okay, oh, message from, a message from Sylvia. Send some more information about Jackie. Great name for a dog. Um, a cat question, no name on this one, saying, we got two cats three years and um, had them since birth. One of them belongs to my daughter and she's leaving, wants to take the cat. Is it okay to separate them? Interesting. I don't know, to be honest. Oh, no, you're making a face. Officially, cats are lonely animals. If you talk about the animals, uh, cats prefer to be alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, we, we, some, some cats can bond, can stay together for, for life. So it's, it's another stress. I believe it's the best to skip both together as they're okay. Yeah. It's, it, we, we often get questions on the show saying, oh, you know, I think my cat is lonely. Should we get her a friend? And most, most people, most vets just say, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> probably not. <laughs> probably, probably absolutely a-okay by themselves. Um, and we're coming back to the... To the pet. Oh, sorry, I've just seen the photo of Jackie, the the stray, the stray, the non pooper. She's absolutely gorgeous, Sylvia. She's just lovely. So she does look very relaxed indeed. Um, a message here saying: Is there any possibility that Doctor Sergio can talk about prosthetics for parrots? Lots are missing a beak part or a limb. Will that be an option in the future? We're doing three D printing for birds. Yes, it's possible. We I have a friend of mine. His name is Roberto Vecchio. He's a Brazilian guy. He did uh, some some brilliant stuff on on internet. 
You can see. So he basically made a titanium beak for uh, a macaque. <gasps> uh, robo bird. Yes, robo bird. You can see this on the internet. Really? It's my... You're uh, going to get him over here? <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> never, you never know. Okay, we're, we're going to squeeze in one last question. We must have to go a quick, a quick answer. Pam's indoor cat has a cough. She says she was sick about 10 days ago and now the cat for the last three days has had a cough. She's eating, drinking, going to the bathroom. She acts normal except for the cough. Does she need to go to the vet? Can she give her anything? How can she help her? Yes, it's best is go to the vet because this coughing and sneeze can take a long time to go away, like 28 days, 30 days, and they need to change the medicine. Probably this is caused by chlamydia. Really? Yeah, so it's uh, the long run. So it's not only the common, common pneumonia. It's been a whirlwind of questions for you this afternoon, Dr. Sergio. We've had, we've had feathers, we've had four legs, we've had behaviours, we've had toileting, we've had it all. Thank you so much for your help. You, it's yeah, always an absolute pleasure. If you do want Dr. Sergio's details, drop me a little message saying vet, but you can be found at Intervet. And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.